There is a uh, fascinating story in the book of Genesis. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Genesis 13, verses 2 through 7. I'll be preaching from uh, Philippians 4, 5 this morning. But there's a fascinating story I think that will illustrate well um, the gentleness we're going to talk about this morning. And we'll just look at the beginning of it uh, this morning. In Genesis 13, verses 2 through 7, and what we see here is Abram in the promised land. God had given, had called Abram from Ur. He had left Ur upon the promise that God had given him. He had brought along with him his nephew not his nephew Lot. And it comes to this point in Genesis 13, verses 2 through 7. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and, and, and I, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. So this is a place where Bethel had been. In fact, it was a place where God had given him this land as part of his future inheritance. Now Lot, who went with Abram, so this is Abram's nephew Lot, he'd been traveling along with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. It's a nice problem to have. But, verse 7, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling then in the land. Lot had been tagging along with Abram, kind of benefiting from God's call to Abram, the promises that God had given Abram. So we see what, how Abram responds to this pro- problem in Genesis 13, 8 through 9. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. He didn't say, I'm your uncle. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. And really what we see here is something I think shocking. This is the land that God had promised to Abraham, still called Abram here. And so what does Abraham do when there's too many of them to be sustained by the land? Abram gives Lot the choice. You go wherever you want. He doesn't say, hey, Lot, this is my land. But out. Go find your own place. This is my inheritance. Now, I'm going to fast forward 3,400 years, and we see a completely different response, maybe the kind of response that is paralleled in our day-to-day lives. At my previous church in Spokane, Washington, the elders and wives had a weekend away together once a year. I remember Pastor Dan, and, and there's not many times that really stand out where he corrected me about something. But once he was trying to plan an event, and he, he told me he was frustrated with me. See, as we were brainstorming about this event, I kept commenting about what food I did or didn't like. Like, oh, I don't want to go there. Or, oh, you know, I was there once and it wasn't great or whatever. I just kept commenting my preferences. It had really ruined his fun in planning this event because every idea was kind of being knocked down by me. Now, I was horrified to hear this as I'm sure that you would be too. But the reality is that I wanted to direct the event towards my preferences. His rebuke, 
expose the deep-seated expectation I had, the expectation that I deserved my way. My trying to direct this outing was an example of a much bigger problem that we all have. Allowing what you feel you deserve determine what you say and do. Allowing what you feel you deserve determine what you say and do. Now, there are many other manifestations of us trying to get what we want. Or many other manifestations of the same heart problem, the same commitment that we deserve what that what we deserve determines what we says and do. Like, for example, when you're bitter, perhaps towards your boss, who's taking credit for the work you've done, you knew that you deserved better. Or maybe rage when you miss the exit on the highway because the driver just won't let you over. For some reason, they are insistent on driving right next to you, and that rage that you feel, you deserve better. Maybe it's anger towards a parent who holds you to a higher standard than they hold themselves to. You're angry because you deserve better, to be treated better. Rejoicing when the harshest punishment is handed out towards someone who's harmed you. Slandering someone who's been getting away with an injustice in your life, and so you take them down a notch in other people's estimation. Perhaps you've been guilty of one of these kinds of responses, and really we could add hundreds more to them. They all have in common that your response is driven by the belief that you deserved better. In Philippians 4, 5 this morning, we're going to see that God has another way for his people. In the New American Standard, it's translated a gentle spirit. In the ESV, it's reasonableness. Often, it's gentleness or maybe it's, it's moderation in King James. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Philippians 4, and we're going to come back and finish this story in Genesis 13 later. But if you go to Philippians 4, we're, we're gonna, I'm going to read through verses 1 through 9 in a minute. But we're going to focus on Philippians 4, 5 this morning. Remember, as Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi, that Paul wrote to let the Philippians know how he was doing while he was in prison, how the gospel was advancing in Rome, things that were very dear to them. The Philippians loved the apostle Paul who had planted their church. He wrote to tell them how he appreciated their generous support. He wrote to protect them from false teachers. But Paul also wrote so that they would live worthy of the gospel. The Philippian church was going through challenges. They were struggling with unity within. And they were also facing persecution from without. We see the uh, clear purpose that Paul wrote in Philippians 1, verses 27 to 28. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit. Now we see the unity with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents. Facing opposition from without, struggling with unity within. The Apostle Paul writes the Philippians. Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9, Paul gives final instructions that would be essential to the healthy fulfillment of them living worthy of the gospel while they strive together for the gospel. So these instructions are just kind of hodgepodge thrown together here. They are intentional. This is how they are practically, in their day-to-day, going to live out living worthy of the gospel. As I read through these verses, notice that there's a, juxtap- a juxtapositioning of right 
interaction and right thinking, a blending of right thinking and right acting, of right relationships with one another, all centered in the Lord. So you're going to see right thinking repeatedly, but also right acting. I'll start at Philippians 4, verse 1, and read through verse 9. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men, the Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray together. And dear Father, we come before you uh, this morning uh, humbled, uh, Lord, by how needy we are. And we are uh, in need of having right responses to one another, and we are in need of having right thinking. And Lord, we pray, Father, that right thinking would lead to right responses, Lord, that you would be glorified in our relationships with one another that we would have this gentle spirit, this reasonableness that we're going to learn from um, the Apostle Paul about this morning. I do pray, Father, and, and, and we do try to use examples, Lord. We want to bring things up in our thinking. Uh, we pray, Father, though, that your spirit would be convicting, Lord. I pray that we would see areas where we need to grow in this trait as we're going to see it's for the glory of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're going to explore four aspects of gentleness, and they're there in, in your outlines. We're going to see, explore four aspects of gentleness in Philippians 4, 5, so that your gentleness will bring glory to Christ. Four aspects of gentleness so that your glory, so that you, I mean, four aspects of, of gentleness in Philippians 4, 5, so that your gentleness will bring glory to Christ. First, we're going to look at the definition of gentleness. And honestly, this is a, a notoriously difficult word to translate in the Greek. And really the biggest problem is that there's just no one perfect English word that captures the idea here. And I'm going to read to you uh, some, some, some quotes from various co commentators as we go through who try to grapple in boiling down this Greek word to one English word. Uh, but listen to what William Hendrickson says. Forbearance, yieldedness, geniality, kindliness, gentleness, Sweet reasonableness, considerateness, charitableness, mildness, magnanimity, generosity. All of these qualities are combined in this word that's used in the original. Taken together, they show the real meaning. I know you've memorized all this. We'll, we'll, we'll keep going over them. When each of these would-be English equivalents is taken by itself alone, Hendrickson says, it becomes clear that there's not a single word in the English language that fully expresses the meaning of the original. That's just one of the, trans the, the difficulties when we have translating from another language. What it doesn't mean, what this gentle spirit, this reasonableness, and, and most often we just refer to it as gentleness, which neither the ESV or the NASV says, but, but gentleness, it doesn't mean quiet and soft-spoken. Although someone who has this gentleness may be soft-spoken at times. 
It doesn't mean someone who wouldn't hurt a fly, though a gentle spirit will not lash out. It doesn't mean someone who won't speak up, who doesn't have convictions, who won't say hard things. We're going to see later that Paul uses this word gentleness to describe Jesus. Jesus said hard things. Jesus confronted sin. Jesus warned of judgment. That is part of gentleness. The Greek lexicon or the Greek dictionaries describes it this way. It's not insisting on every right or letter of the law or custom. It's not insisting on, on pushing things as far as you could. It's yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, and tolerant. Before New Testament times, this word was, was used to give a little bit of its history of authorities like judges who were fair but lenient, not blindly enforcing the strictest punishment of the law. They would look at the, at the situation and look at the punishment that could be given. And they would try for something that was fair, even lenient, not being a pushover, but not exacting the extent of punishment that could be. Now I'm going to read a few commentators who, who explain on this phrase, because really I find that each of them uh, were valuable in my understanding what this word means. So this is what, 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 what I, Howard Marshall, says. It's fair-mindedness, the attitude of a man who's charitable towards men's faults, who's merciful in his judgment of their failings, because he takes the whole situation into his reckonings. You can imagine that in dealing with your spouse. It's an attitude that, that takes their whole day, even their whole life, their experiences, maybe their health, their family, into that relationship and, 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 and responding based upon that. It's not forgetting everything. Another commentator, Ralph Martin, says, perhaps graciousness is the best English equivalent. And the more I read about this word, I kind of lean towards that way. Graciousness is a really good word. I know why they didn't translate gentleness as graciousness, because grace means a lot of things in the Bible. But as we use Englishness, as we use Englishness now, as we use English, uh, graciousness in modern-day English is a really good way of describing this. Perhaps graciousness, Ralph Martin says, is the best English equivalent. The spirit of willingness to yield under trial, which will show itself in refusal to retaliate when attacked. Isn't that graciousness? Refusing to retaliate when attacked. Willingness to yield under trial. The commentator P.T. O'Brien says, an unabrasive spirit under provocation. That's really good. So when you're provoked, not being abrasive. Wait, but someone just crossed me. And all of a sudden you feel that fire in you, right? To not be abrasive. Tim, Tim Challies wrote, uh, wrote on this character. To know what posture and response is fitting for any occasion. It indicates a graciousness, a desire to extend mercy to others, and a desire to yield to the preferences of other people. We see, that we see the same word in the list of elder qualifications in 1 Timothy 3.3. 3. Not addicted to wine or, or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Its contrast there is to pugnacious. I know that's not a word that we use every day. It's quick to get in a fight. It's quick to throw down. Maybe some of you have felt that when, when you're offended. You're like, you're just always there, ready to go. Lord willing, you're not always there. But there's times and seasons where that becomes increasingly difficult. Alexander Strzok 
wrote about this word gentle, as translated gentle there. A gentle man patiently makes allowances for the weaknesses and ignorance of the fallen human condition. So a, a gentle person, gentleness, is aware that you are talking, dealing with another fallen human person, just like you are. And I love this next quote by Alexander Strzok. So many wrongs, disagreements, faults, and injustices exist in the sinful world that one would be forced to live in perpetual division, anger, and conflict were it not for forbearance. And he's talking about this word gentleness here. You would be in constant hostility toward many people in your life, but not every person in your life, if you didn't cultivate gentleness. Now, it's really important to note that not every word in the New Testament that's translated gentleness is this Greek word. Okay? So you probably have thought about, and maybe even as we think about gentleness, maybe some verses pop into your mind, like Galatians 5.22, where the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. That's a good Greek word, but it's not the same Greek, Greek word. Or Matthew 11.29, where Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. Jesus is gentle. That's true. And this, this Greek word from our passage is used to refer to Jesus, but that's not in this verse here. That's another Greek word, called, called, uh, which is proutes. And it's the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. And again, gentleness, humility, courtesy. So proutes is really the, broad, the broader of the two words. When, 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 when it's, it's close to humility and it's the overflow of humility, it's having a low view of yourself. And I would say, um, so that's kind of the broader of the two words. And I think that that's just important for you to know that every time, and maybe the most famous verses you think about gentleness isn't this Greek word we're looking at this morning, which is used a little less often and is more to do about yielding to someone else, about graciousness when you've been wronged. It's, it's just a little bit more narrow. Both of these words are used to refer to Jesus in 2 Corinthians 10.10.1. 10, myself, uh, I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So let's take all that and describe it in some kind of summary here. I'm going to go through a list here of what this gentleness is. It's not being easily offended. Not being easily offended. It's not exerting preferences over other people's preferences doesn't mean that it's wrong when someone say, hey, well, what would you like for, for lunch? But it's not being domineering in your preferences. It's not demanding your rights. It's not retaliating when doing so could be justified. You know that you're right. You know that you've been wronged. But it's not retaliating when you could justify it to yourself. It's yielding when possible. It's being patient when wronged and generous when taken advantage of. It's being empathetic towards others' struggles, and this is such a key part, and we'll look at this more later, how we cultivate this, being empathetic towards other people's struggles. It's wanting other people's best when you've been treated unfairly. It's being balanced and response and trusting God with the final outcome. All of those are aspects of this gentleness. In, the, in context of Philippians 4, 5, this command to let your gentle spirit be known to all men, the Lord is near, is very important. See, we can look at it in the context of Philippians 4.4. 4. 
where the command is to rejoice the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul doesn't put any Greek words here to show that this one is dependent upon the other. But there's some logical connections here. A tempered, generous, gracious response naturally overflows when you are rejoicing in the Lord, or at least more naturally. When you are rejoicing in the Lord, you can interpret others' responses through God's goodness to you. When your happiness is in the Lord, you are liberated from basing your joy on how you are treated. When your joy is not in your circumstances, what is good for others instead, when your joy is not in your circumstances, what is good for others instead of what seems good for you, you can act in gentleness. You can do what's good for others instead of what seems good for you. But when you are not rejoicing in the Lord, when you are just kind of angsty and grumbling and complaining and self-centered, you will find that every offense stings more and every wrong against you a tougher stain to forget. You'll find it easier to seek your joy by manipulating your way, by, by imagining how you're going to get even when you're not rejoicing in the Lord. You can also see that we can go even further back in Philippians 4, verses 2 through 3, and see how important this is to unity. While you are meditating on how you've been wrong, what someone said to you, how you were shamed in a meeting, when you've been meditating on that, when you've been pursuing what you deserve and using that as your rule, living in harmony is impossible. Right? When your eyes are so full of you and what you deserve, living in harmony is impossible. You will have conflict. You won't be thinking the same thing in the Lord as someone else. If your manifesto, if what's driving your life is what I want, what I deserve, how I should be treated. You won't have unity. So you see here, Philippians 4, 5 flows naturally out of this. Paul's concern for their unity and their rejoicing in the Lord. So I trust by God's grace you have a better idea of what gentleness means. We've looked at the definition of gentleness. I, again, if you had to boil it down to, 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 to one word, I think graciousness works really, really well. Now, let's look at the extent of gentleness. The extent of gentleness. So first we look at the definition. Now, let's look at the extent of gen gentleness. Philippians 4, 5 says, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Be known to, every, to everyone. Literally all people. All men. Your gentleness should be obvious to both believers and non-believers. Those who don't know the Lord, who are not yet in a right relationship with him. See, Paul is concerned here, and I, and, and I believe that this is the point that he's making. He's concerned about their relationship, about how they are seeing their reputation before a watching world. Gentleness shouldn't just be part of your reputation at church. It should be your reputation at work and at school. Are you known as the person who must have their own way on a group project, who dominates does your preference dominate where the group goes to lunch? On your commute, are you the driver who retaliates? I'm not talking about warning someone, but retaliates by blaring on the horn. 
on vacation? Do you handle disappointment with your accommodations? You know, the, the, the hotel isn't what you were hoping. Things weren't as clean as you wanted. With indignation or grace? I know you deserve better, but that's not what this is about, right? It's about your gentleness being known to all men. At least we think we deserve better. How do you respond when your food is cold at a restaurant? Are you bitter? Has it ruined your, your evening? Are you quick to complain to a manager about your server? Are you eager? Are you already plotting the Yelp review you're going to leave because of this bad experience? In the grocery store, are you the disgruntled customer who's offended because an item that you went to that store to buy is sold out? How dare they run out of something? Look how long this line is. I deserve better. In your online transactions, do you handle a dispute as someone who values souls more than dollars? Where do your social media followers know you as someone who blasts, who berates, who belittles? Do you rejoice in highlighting other people's evil? See, all of these have to do with what our reputation is, with a world that doesn't know our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, really, just think about it. If someone just looked at all of the reviews that you leave, where they know you to be a gentle person, I'm not saying there's not value in that, but, but what, what tone is there? What is your heart revealing? Gentleness is essential where Christians face cultural opposition for their submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Gentleness is essential in this world now as Christians face cultural opposition for their submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not just because we believe in right and wrong. It's because Jesus Christ is our Lord. Now we know that faithfulness necessitates that we have to say hard things. That we have to point to Jesus Christ as the only way. That we have to call people to repentance. But is our motivation that we've been personally offended by someone's sin? Or is it God's glory and their salvation? Is it about just being part of those who are right? Or about seeing Christ glorified and seeing people saved? Does the world know you as someone who is gentle? Gentleness shouldn't be vaguely present. It should be an obvious trait. That's what he says. Let your gentle spirit be known, be evident, be obvious to all men. They should know. Those Christians, they are gentle. People, they, they are gracious. They, they do not respond when they are, 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 are wronged. Or they respond for good when they are wronged. Now, why does... Paul specify this gentleness be known. Why doesn't he say, let your joy be known to all men? See, all sinners, including us, we have a high evaluation of ourselves. We have a high evaluation of what we deserve and of how we should be treated. But gentleness, this willingness to yield, this, this graciousness, it demonstrates that we have a higher value than getting our own way. It demonstrates in real time real time, that we serve a different God, that we have a different king. Gentleness in, 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 in these everyday affairs of whether our meal is closed and closed? cold and how people around us drive. 
gentleness in our responses distinguishes us from those who don't have Jesus Christ. We are those who understand that we deserve hell. We don't deserve warm food. That doesn't mean we don't say something, but we should be gracious. We should be gunning for our server's job. I don't know if you've ever had that bit of wickedness in your heart. You're like, what's going on here? Not fair. It's date night. Conflicts and disappointments will come to you. But will they reveal your gentleness? That is only possible if God's spirit resides in you. Right? This is not something that we can drum up in ourselves. This God-glorifying gentleness. This is the work of God's spirit in you. It is a different word of gentleness than the fruit of the spirit. But this too is the work of God's spirit in our lives. This is only possible if you have Jesus Christ as your Lord. This is only possible. These kinds of responses are only possible if you know Jesus Christ. If you have placed your faith in him. If you have been united through grace to Jesus. This is how Jesus Christ responded. We're going to look at that later. The gentleness. The, the, he says the meekness and gentleness of Christ. That's how we have this gentleness. Through our dependence upon him. And we're going to talk more in, in just a minute about cultivating this gentleness. But let's first look at the motivation for gentleness. Let's look at the motivation for gentleness. So we saw first the definition of gentleness. We saw the extent of gentleness should be known to all men. And the motivation for gentleness is the Lord is near. Philippians 4, 5 says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now there's two interpretive difficulties here. The first is, is nearness a matter of the Lord's closeness or of his return? And this word near is used both of time and location in the New Testament. Of people who are near close by, but also of events that are coming. The Lord is near can mean that the Lord is, is present and eager to help us in our difficulties. Or it could mean that the return of the Lord is near. I lean towards the second of that. We saw in Philippians 3, 20 to 21, just a few verses before this, that the return of Christ is, 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 is close in Paul's mind. He said in Philippians 3, 20 to 21, just a few verses prior, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. The returning Jesus Christ is front in G Paul's mind, and, and, and I think that influences his talking about the nearness of the Lord here. Believers are to eagerly await the return of the Lord. Luke 12, 40 says, You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. Revelation twenty two twelve says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Revelation twenty two twenty says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We know that Jesus Christ is coming back. And so while we are still waiting, Scripture is very clear that Jesus says he is coming quickly. The Lord is near. It is what we are looking forward to. Now, I said that there's two interpretive difficulties. The first is what near means, near in closeness or near in. And it's nice. You, you, you really can't, can't go wrong. Whether it means the Lord is near in closeness or the Lord is near in his return. Both, both are true, right? And both are comforting. Uh, now, there's the second interpretive difficulty is here. Is, does this thought, the Lord is near, is that the end of verse 5? 
Or does that really intro verse 6? The New American Standard Bible, if you have it, doesn't make that choice for you. The ESV does. And if you look, you can see that there's a semicolon separating verses 5 and 6 in the ESV, saying that the Lord is near intros this next idea about not being anxious. And I think if you were to, to, to take it that way, it would be emphasizing his closeness. But the Lord is near really follows this clause, this command to let your gentleness be evident to all. So because the Lord is near comes at the end of verse 5 and not the end of verse 6, I really think it should go with verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. The Lord is returning. Paul motivates the Philippians to be gracious, to be yielding, to value relationship above rights and people above preferences because the Lord is coming back. The Lord's near arrival puts the question of rights into perspective. As William Hendrickson says, when all the promises made to God's people become realities, believers, in spite of being persecuted, can certainly afford to be mild and charitable in their relationship to others. All the good news that we have in Christ Jesus, not just the present blessings, but the future reality that's coming to us, knowing that the Lord is near, that he is bringing reward with him, how liberating that is for us in our relationship with one another to be gracious. The Lord's near arrival is strong encouragement to us to be found pleasing to him when he returns. He may come back today. How do you want to see, have him return seeing you've been treating your spouse or treating your children or treating your waiter or driving on the highway? The Lord is near. The Lord's near arrival also liberates us to entrust vindication to God who is judging. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-8 describes that's only just for God to repair, repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted. He's talking about them going through suffering. That when God is going to repay those who are afflicting you, give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And what a strong warning here for those of you who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is near. He may return at any time. And he's going to deal out punishment to those who are opposed to him. You have to run to him. And we're going to talk about this, the goodness of God in the second hour. That the goodness of God pushes us to find refuge in him. We can go to God because he is good. So go to him now before the Lord returns. And yet the fact that the Lord returns helps us cultivate gentleness. The fact that he's near. We don't have to worry about getting all of our rights, all of what we deserve. Right? We, we don't have to stand up for ourselves in all of our relationships. You know, maybe there's times where that's the wisest thing, to go in a humble and gracious way, whether in a business dealing or in a legal setting. But, but we know that the Lord, when he returns, is going to fix all that. He is going to reward and he's going to judge. Now, this command here, let your gentle spirit be known to all men, has wreaked havoc on my soul. I'm kind of hopeful it does the same thing for yours if you're as wicked as I am. 
I, I have thought of so many responses where I did not have gentleness, where I was not gracious, where I had a very hard time getting offenses out of my heart. This makes me think that maybe Paul has something else in mind. I didn't read it in any commentators. They always say, be very cautious when you don't read it, anything in any commentator, because it's probably wrong. But as I looked, even before putting two and two together, when I looked, I'm like, Jesus, come quickly. Because this, 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 this pride I've got in my heart, this sense that I deserve to be treated better is deep in my humanity, this fallenness. And I need that ripped out. I can't wait to be free of this. Now, I know, I know I'm free. I know I can obey you, but this is hard to get out of here. And I started craving the return of Christ. Because I know when he returns, I'm going to please him. I'm going to be transformed to be like him. When I see him, I'll be like he is. I'll have, no, I'll have nothing but gentleness for eternity. And maybe, just maybe, that's what's going on in Paul's heart here. He says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. He's going to complete in you what he started. Now, again, no other commentators said that. But that's what my heart was doing. And then I read it there. And I'm like, maybe. So either way, it's true. And it's a good hope. This is going to be hard for you. This is... If you haven't, I'm like, like I feel like, like, like this is like sanctification 2.0. I don't know if that's even right to say. You know, there's, 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 as we are saved, there's these big ugly sins and these lashings out and all these things that, that, that we try to work on. And then there's, there's these things that go even deeper. That, 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 that just is how you view the world and how self-centered you are. And I'm not saying that, that, that there's like bad sins and good sins, all that kind of stuff. I'm just saying, this is, this, this is hard to get out. I am needy. And I think that as you work in getting this out of your heart, this, this how easily offended we are, you're going to see that it's hard and that you need the Lord Jesus Christ. But he is gentle, right? He's willing to help you. He's given you, he's linked you with him through his spirit. You have the ability to obey him if you have Jesus Christ so let's talk here about how we can cultivate gentleness. I've kind of already started about that. The first thing is rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. When you are rejoicing in the Lord, your joy is not tethered to your circumstances. It's not tied to how you are treated. Really, you're working hard to see this, this, this world, your relationships, through that lens of the gospel. You're loving Jesus Christ. You're, you're thankful for your salvation. When you're rejoicing in the Lord, you're liberated to seek others' welfare as you reject the stranglehold that rights and, and preferences have upon your heart. There's incredible freedom when your mind is full of God's grace to you in Christ Jesus. To be meek, to be gentle, to be generous. So rejoice in the Lord and keep cultivating that. Second is seek to view yourself accurately. It's painful. This command is one of those that will help you do that. Seek to view, to view yourself accurately. When we feel outraged about our treatment, when we're clamoring for our pound of flesh as Shylock did, when we've forgotten how sinful our sin is, That 
That's what's happened there. When we're doing that, we've forgotten how sinful our sin is. See, our offense against God is infinitely greater than anyone's offense against us. If, I mean, to think that we have raged because our dinner wasn't what we wanted. When, 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 when we have offended the infinitely holy God. That's shocking. We are in dangerous ground. When we are thanking God, we are not like other men. Instead of crying out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's really what, we're, 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 what happens when we're not being gentle. We're really distancing ourselves from them. I'm glad I'm not like them. Psh, look at them. How, how, how could they treat me that way? We, we try to separate ourselves. Instead, we should be saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The only thing we deserve is what Jesus received when he was forsaken by God. A third way to cultivate gentleness is remember that the world has fallen. You will be dismissed. I don't mean to end kind of on a negative note. You will be overlooked. You will be used. Those you serve will slander you. Those you pray for will persecute you. You will be disappointed by some, and I guarantee you'll be disappointment to many. Martin Lloyd-Jones Lloyd says, you must actively and positively consider them. You, you have to work at this. You must try to find excuses for them and seek an, ex, an explanation for their way of behavior. And I, I don't mean excuse them. Oh, well, they've had a hard day. But, but, but to be aware that we are fallen people, right? To be aware that we are surrounded by people who are still slaves of sin, as Martin Lloyd-Jones describes them, that are dupes of Satan who have been deceived. We are surrounded by those who are saved, who are battling sin, even as we are battling sin. So to remember that those around us are fallen, right? Like, what did you expect were sinners, have mercy for one another. Have pity on one another. Remember the Lord's gentleness with you is the fourth way to cultivate this. The Lord has not been harsh with you. He didn't exact vengeance upon you. He's been patient with you. At your first sin, he didn't smash you. Wow, this pulpit doesn't really move, but he doesn't smash you. At your 10,000th sin, he doesn't smash you. He hasn't crushed you by exposing the fullness of your sin to you, right? He doesn't, he doesn't open your eyes so you see for one horrifying moment exactly how sinful you are. He doesn't expose all that to you at once. He's gracious and patient with you. You've treated him unfairly, unjustly, and yet he has sought your good. Remember the Lord's gentleness with you. And then remember to wait for the Lord. The Lord's coming is at hand. His reward is with him. All wrongs will be righted. Now is the time to win with gentleness those who are facing God's justice. You probably haven't kept your finger in your Bible the whole time, but go ahead and go back to Genesis 13, and we'll see how Abraham responds to this request, or, or, or Abraham responds to Lot's response. We haven't seen Lot's response yet. It says... Genesis 13, verse 10. So remember, Abraham, currently still called Abram, said, you can have the pick of the lamb. And what, what does Lot do? 
verse 10, chapter 13, Genesis 13, verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan. It was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. But it says, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zor, the land looked great. And so what does Lot say? Verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan. And Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. You see what Abraham was able to do there. Okay? Abraham was able to say, Lot, you take the best part. Not, Lot, seriously? You've been riding my coattails. You know, I've got this covenant. This is not your covenant. This is my covenant. This is my land right here where I've made this altar. God has given me this land. This, 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 is, this is mine. How, where, where do you get off? And then you choose the best part? You, you, but that's not how Abraham responds here. In fact, we see that God responds to Abraham's gentleness by reaffirming later in chapter 13. God's promise to Abraham, and he says, all the land that you see is going to be yours. Lot wasn't gentle. He grabbed the, the best land. He wasn't reasonable. In Hebrews 11.10, it says of Abraham, he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was looking towards the future. He was looking towards the fulfillment of God's promises. Abraham's faith and the Lord's faithfulness freed him to be gentle in his response to Lot, freed him to be generous in his response to Lot, freed him to be gracious in his response to Lot. Your confidence in the Lord's nearness will let your gentleness be known to all so that all men will see that you serve a different Lord. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, I thank you for the uh, uh, privilege of being in your word, and I thank you uh, that your word is painful. I thank you, Father, uh, that you allow in your sovereignty. And I think about my brothers and sisters here today. There are, are, are difficult circumstances in their lives. Um, Father, I'm sure as uh, we went through your word this morning, they're reminded of, of relationships at work, at school, maybe in their families, even here at church, Lord, um, where, they, where, they, where they've been offended and where they've responded by, by taking offense, where they've not been gentle or generous or gracious, where their minds keep overplaying what they deserve and how they deserve to be treated better. Lord, I know that that's been the case in my heart, and it's so humbling. It's, it's, it's terrifying, really. Lord, I thank you for the hard circumstances you put us in that reveal how prideful we are. I thank you, Father, that you are faithful uh, to begin the good work you began in us, Lord. That even as Paul began this letter, that you will bring to completion the work that you began. I thank you, Father, that the Lord is near, that Jesus Christ is returning, that we can entrust ourselves to him who judges justly, that our hearts will be, that, 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 that these new hearts will be united with new bodies, and that we will have no instinct for all eternity for our preferences or for our rights, Lord. Father, we look forward to that day. We, we earnestly uh, plead for him. Father, we thank you so much for your son, we thank you for the gentleness that he showed while, while in life. And we pray, Father, that you would help us uh, to have that same gentleness in our um, relationships with those in a fallen world. In Jesus' name, amen.